Beloved congregation, would you turn again in your Bibles to John chapter 15 and verse 5. John 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord, this Bible, this Word of God, it is no ordinary book. It is God's very Word to us. Holy men of old were carried by the Holy Spirit to commit to writing those things which are necessary for us to know for both life, godliness, salvation, and the glory of our King. It is the infallible, unchanging, perfect rule of faith and practice unto the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, it has the special care of the Holy Spirit in every detail. Nothing which is committed unto the church as sacred scripture has even the slightest mistake or error. And not even a jot or tittle can pass away and be lost. It is preserved through the singular, careful, powerful work of God. But with all that understood, I wish to introduce a scenario, a story. Imagine that this gospel of John were lost. Imagine that. A portion of the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet, through persecution of the church of God, every copy of John was cast into the flame. And so it was that the church had to live without this book of John. Without all of the revelation of Christ it contains and of his glorious salvation in the gospel. Suppose that you had never laid eyes upon this book of John. And then all of a sudden, a great archaeological find uncovers just a fragment. This one chapter of John chapter 15. And it proves authentic. And, and for the very first time, the church throughout all those ages can finally read John 15. Suppose you had the opportunity to lay eyes on it. What would you give? How much money would be worth to you to even read these words once? The words of your Savior, Christian. The words of your Creator. The words of your Lord. These are valuable words, this chapter, John 15. And our familiarity with it, the fact that it has not been lost, but indeed been one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible, should not rob us of the wonder and awe that should grip us when we hear the words of Christ speaking to our souls. You see, they were recorded at a very important time in our Lord's ministry, the night in which he was betrayed. He's left the upper room where 
He had his final meal with his disciples, and as he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that betrayal, arrest, crucifixion await him. These men, he knows, will soon abandon him. And yet, in his great love and care, he bestows unto them and through them the church of all ages these very practical instructions concerning the Christian life. What is held forth here in John chapter 15 is a chapter that directs us into what it really means to be a Christian. It reminds us that not all those who bear the name of Christ can truly claim to have that spiritual connection and life of which the Savior speaks. But it is what we must have if we are to live and die happily. I commend this fifth verse to our attention. And I would ask that we consider it under this theme, particularly the last words of verse 5. Nothing done without Christ. Nothing done without Christ. With the Lord's help, I wish to see three things from these words, particularly without me, he can do nothing. The meaning of it, the warning, and the encouragement. The meaning, the warning, and the encouragement. Nothing done without Christ. Well, children, it's a very interesting way in which the Lord Jesus speaks, isn't it? He begins by saying, I am the true vine, in verse 1. And he continues all that way right into our own verse. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. This is the overall context of these words that we are studying and maybe that's a bit confusing to you children. Why is it that Jesus would speak in this way? Maybe you've driven past a vineyard before and those vines that are all laid out on the trellises growing those grapes for, um, for wine and, and grape juice and other things. You may ask, well, why is it that Jesus is speaking this way? Well... It is a surprising thing, isn't it? Here's the very Lord of the whole universe, the very Son of God, the one who is the very brightness of his Father's glory, the one who made and fashioned us through the word of his power. And yet he condescends to this lowly expression, I am the vine. You might be aware, congregation, that this is a very common way of describing the church of the Old Testament, the people of Israel. For example, Psalm 80 and verse 8, where it speaks of Israel in this way, Thou, God, hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. Indeed, this picture of the church or the people of God as a vine, it 
reminds us, doesn't it, that the reason why the Lord's people exist is for his glory. That's why a man plants a vineyard in order to bear fruit, in order to yield a harvest to profit from. And so it is that the people of God are likened to a vine because their purpose is not to live unto themselves, but to the glory of their God, yielding fruit, good works, obedience to the glory of his grace. But we know the people of God, the church and Israel of the Old Testament, they fall short so often. Indeed, great judgments fall upon the people of God because of their departing from their purpose. And so it is the Lord Jesus speaks in this way. I am the true vine. All that Israel and the church was called to be, I am in perfection. And so the true church of God's elect, the New Testament church in particular, it finds its life, its root, its sap, its energy, its fruitfulness in me. I am the vine. Listen to what the Bible commentator John Gill says about this description of Christ. He is called so, that is called a vine, with respect to his fruitfulness. For as the vine is a fruitful tree, brings forth and bears fruit in clusters, so Christ, as man and mediator, is full of grace and truth. Of all spiritual blessings and exceeding great and precious promises. From him comes the wine of divine love, of gospel truths and gospel ordinances, the various blessings of grace and the joys of heaven, which are the best wine reserved by him till last. I am the vine, ye are the branches. What a sufficiency, what a fullness of grace is found in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I would, I would urge you today, if you are not fixated upon this glorious person as the one who is able to satisfy all your deepest longings and needs, then you are living in the foolishness of deep deception. What lack of wisdom is found in Christ? In him is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What lack of righteousness is found in Christ? Oh, he had a perfect righteousness, perfectly met the requirements of the law of God so that sinners like you and I might be declared righteous in him. Oh, what warmth and love and fullness of mercy is found with him where all others may forsake you, he will never forsake. What lack of life is found in him? None whatsoever where we may be dead and dry and cold and bereft of even the least comfort or sense of God's presence. We turn unto Christ and know that in him is found life and life abundant. The person of the God-man, God and man and one glorious person, the Son of God, come in our flesh. It comes up to us today under the figure of a vine so that we would know that apart from him we will wither and die. 
I am the vine, he says, and you, you are the branches. How awful to think of a branch severed from its vine, there to wither and decay, to rot. That is the picture of the sinner outside of the life of Christ. To be separated from the vine, to be outside of Christ, is to have no hope, no joy, no happiness, no eternal assurance of life to come. But to be in him is to have all things that are necessary in life and death. Notice how it's put here in verse 5. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. There's a correspondence, a, a sameness, you see. For there's a common nature of those who are born again of the Spirit of God and the Son of God himself. Those outside of the saving work of Christ, while well, they have hearts that are cold and dead, they are at enmity towards God and they are in league with the devil. The one who has newness of life is born again by the Spirit. They are like Jesus Christ. Christ has been born in them, we could say. And so there is a fittingness, a connectedness, a union which is found. We share one life, for by his Spirit he abides in us. He dwells in us. He lives in us. And by his uh, work in us, we in turn abide in him. In true faith, we grasp hold of the Savior. We trust in him. We commit our souls unto him. And so this two-way bond is forged. He in us and we in him. It's similarly spoken in other passages where Jesus speaks of himself according to different parabolic or symbolic language to describe this great spiritual reality. John 6 and verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. John 6, 35, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, Union with Christ is a noble principle, productive of all good. A life of faith in the Son of God is incomparably the most excellent life a man can live in this world. It is regular and even, pure and heavenly. It is useful and comfortable. And all that answers the end of life. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. What does it mean that nothing can be done without Christ? It is simply this, that from him flows all that is spiritually good. From him flows all that is pleasing to God. Nothing Nothing can be done that is pleasing to God apart from Jesus Christ. And here immediately we see how flatly 
contradictory the ways of the world are comparison to this gospel. What does the world tell you? Well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It does not matter if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ or any number of other religions or have no religion at all. It does not matter. Indeed, if you take seriously the words of Christ, it does not matter if you rest in his glorious person. It does not matter if you've been born again by the Spirit. It does not matter. Or what of the ways of the professing church, people who claim to be Christians? Maybe they would say in their profession, in their words, well, yes, of course, it's all about Christ. Yes, of course, we cannot do anything without him. And yet, and yet, this very passage explains that not all those who would so profess to be Christians are so in reality. He says so in verse 2, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. He says in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So what is the full picture here? Well, there, there are really two kinds of branches, aren't there? There are the branches that are abiding in the vine, drawing their strength, nourishment, and spiritual life from the vine. And then there are those who really are not truly connected to the vine. These are those who are cast away. They are those who are burned. Oh, it's a terrible thing. A terrible thing to be raised in a Christian family and not truly be born again. A terrible thing to be within the walls of a church and yet to be outside Christ. A terrible thing to have the profession of true spiritual life and to lack the reality of it. Oh, my dear friend, you must have Christ. You must have spiritual life in him. You must believe on the Son of God. If you do not abide in the vine, it is worse for you than for those who never hear of the name of Christ. For you will have to answer for even these things that are in your hearing. You will have to answer for rejecting him. So it is that we may transition to not only the meaning of this passage, but the warning. The warning. Look at those words again. For without me, ye can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, if anyone else were to say that but the Son of God, we would say that's an egomaniac. Were anyone else to say that, that would be a gross blasphemy. You know, it might be the case where you tell someone when you fall in love, I can't live without you. But indeed, Perhaps that speaks too much, for indeed our life is lived unto the glory of God. And how much we may treasure any other person, they cannot take the place of the Lord. Where the Lord Jesus would speak this, he speaks truly. And it is a warning, isn't it? However we may find ourselves this morning, whether in Christ or outside Christ, whether a man of faith or having no faith whatsoever, there is a need to take this seriously. Listen to what Arthur Pink 
says in his commentary, to abide in Christ signifies the constant occupation of the heart with him, a daily active faith in him, which, so to speak, maintains the dependency of the branch upon the vine and the circulation of life and fatness of the vine in the branch. He also quotes a man in that same commentary by the name of Mr. Campbell who says, to abide in Christ has always reference to the maintenance of fellowship with God in Christ. The word abide calls us to vigilance, lest at any time the experimental or the experience of realization of our union with Christ should be interrupted. To abide in him then is to have sustained conscience, communion with him. This is the nature of what is spoken of here. We must abide in Christ and we are strictly warm without him. We can do Nothing, And I think at this exact point, many Christians, even true Christians, they are liable to stumble at this. Maybe you say, well, yes, I'm a Christian. I believed in the Lord. And then at that point, you go off and you say, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to decide what he wants me to do. I'm going to run off and I'm going to do it. And so what is before your mind's eye? Well, the task at hand. I'm in a family. I need to care for the children, the grandchildren, my husband, my wife, whatever it may be. Maybe you say, well, I've got a job to do. I'm going to give myself unto my job, my daily labors, my occupation, my studies, whatever it may be. I'm going to give myself utterly unto that. And then at that point, what you find is that there is a dryness that sets in. As though... God was not so close as though Christ was not so near, as though ultimately there is no difference between you and the believer because you're drawing on your own strength, your own power, a natural principle of strength which in time will fade and be worn down. And all the time, Christ would say, the way to live, the way to carry out your duties, the way to bear fruit unto the glory of my name is not not to forget my grace, to ignore my person. No, it is to keep me in the very focal point of your mind's eye. That even as you carry out your duties, even as you bear your crosses, even as you endure temptations and trials, it is Christ Jesus that you meditate upon. So as you live and, and as you carry out your responsibilities, you do so not as a mere individual, but as part of the body of Christ. In continual prayer, in continual supplication, you commit all of your life's duties unto him. In all of the temptations and trials, worries, sorrows, and cares, you remember his promises never to leave you, nor forsake you. In the midst of all the confusion and noise of this present culture, you hide his words in your heart, that you would stir yourself to a holy remembrance that you live not unto yourself, but to the glory 
of Christ. Listen to what John Gill says again. Nothing that is spiritually good, no, not anything at all, be it little or great, easy or difficult to be performed, cannot think a good thought, cannot speak a good word or do a good action, can neither begin one nor, when it is begun, perfect it. How quickly do we forget that? We forget that we can do nothing without Jesus Christ. I remember when I was in seminary, there was an old godly preacher by the name of Al Martin, you might be familiar with. He came and addressed the student body, and he told us very sternly as those who are training for the gospel ministry that in your study, you should have two seats, two seats. The one seat you devote to prayer as you begin your day, praying unto the Lord for strength, mercy, grace, and wisdom. And then the other chair, you may devote yourself to the study of the word of God and in all your labors in the ministry. But he told us very sternly that you have no right to sit in that second seat until you've sat in the first. And how terrible it is, the temptation to say, I've got a million things to do. I surely have no time to devote unto communion with Christ. Oh, my friend, you are too busy not to devote time to communion with Christ. Where so many things press upon us and would drive us away from this top priority, it's there what we must fight. It's there we must labor much to spend time every day, especially the beginning of the day, in communion with our Lord. Matthew Henry writes, we have as necessary and constant a dependence upon the grace of the mediator for all the actions of the spiritual and divine life as we have upon the providence of the creator for all the actions of the natural life. For as to both, it is in the divine power that we live and move and have our being. Abstracted from the merit of Christ, we can do nothing towards our justification. And from the Spirit of Christ, nothing towards our sanctification. Without Christ, we can do nothing aright. Nothing that will be fruit-pleasing to God or profitable to ourselves. There is a warning here. And I want to ask that you take it seriously. I want you to understand that very often you may say to your own heart, I wish I was closer to God. I wish I saw more of his glory. I wish I was more godly. I wish I wasn't succumbing to sin. Well, Christ is coming to you today, and he wants you to have this written, written on your heart that you would never forget. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing, nothing whatsoever. Do not tempt him, dear Christian. Do not grieve his spirit. Do not dishonor him by taking even a single step outside of communion with Christ. No. In all that you do, do it in the power of the spirit. Do it in the power of Christ. Do it in faith. Do it independent on his word and promises. Where you do this, you'll be more than conqueror, as 
We see in this last point the encouragement, the encouragement. I tell you this, that yes, there is a a warning here, but was it not given in love? Here are these disciples. And he knows that they will make many mistakes. He knows that they will betray him there in the garden and flee for their own safety as cowards. He knows that even this man Peter who heard these words that he will betray him by denying him before that servant girl three times. He knows our weakness. He knows our frame. He knows you, Christian, much more than you know yourself. He knows that without him, nothing, nothing to his glory or your good can be done. But he also knows that with Christ, there is nothing, nothing that he gives you that you cannot endure and do so to the glory of Christ. Listen to these famous words from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned that in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, sometimes people take those words in verse 3 and they take it out of context. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. I can jump off a building and fly in the air. I can, no, not those things. No, it's in the context. It's everything which God would assign you. Every duty, every responsibility, every affliction, every sorrow. He comes to you and he says, take up your cross, Christian. Follow after me. Endure hardship. Endure self-denial. And do it for the praise of my grace. This person who you don't think you can even tolerate for another second, I want you to love them and lay down your life for them. This uh, pain and sorrow that you think will crush you, I, I command you to take that up and to endure it as a soldier of Christ. That fear which grips you and paralyzes you, it is this which you must, which you must set aside as a light thing and begin to serve me with boldness and godly fear. Whatever it is that Christ has assigned you, you may do it, you can do it, you must do it, and you will do it, but not through your own strength. I can do all things, says Paul, through Christ which strengtheneth me. What is this like? Well, it's like you're in a war, and the one thing you do not bring out is your most powerful weapon against the enemy. It is like you are trying to run a marathon in your own strength when all the while there is a powerful vehicle and a car in your driveway that's able to take you exactly where you need to go. It is like trying to fight the battles of faith with both hands tied behind your back when there is a strength that you do not even understand that is at your disposal. You don't know what you are capable of, Christian. You do not know what you are called to. You are called unto glory. 
You are called to bear forth the very character and the will and the heart of Christ in this doubting and unbelieving and dark world. And where you may think you are unequal to the task, the reality is that where Christ indwells you and you indwell Christ, where you commit yourselves wholeheartedly unto his service, you will indeed bear much fruit and you will do so to the glory of his grace. All praise unto our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we hear these things and do them. Amen.